It's the Climate Cause. Climate Cause. I'm Maddie Rez, and I'm interviewing people to explore how they relate to climate change and what they're doing about it. It's going to be another great episode. Thanks for listening. And as always, this episode is made in partnership with Ecological Design Network. Visit their website, ecologicaldesignnetwork.com, to find out how they can help you. I am here with Corey Parrish, who is a lead transportation planner with Vicus, a transportation firm based in Los Angeles. I know Corey because we go way back to a group called Live Move at the University of Oregon. Um, at Live Move, we were involved in lots of active transportation advocacy work. So for those of you listening, you know I love to throw in things about transportation. And today, that's all we're talking about. Well, kind of. We're, we're diving a little bit deeper. And today's intention is to hear a little bit more about Corey, um, how she connects to the climate crisis, and the work that she does. Um, Vicus. So um, welcome, Corey. Thanks, Maddie. How are you doing today? I am doing good. I had a cup of coffee right before we hopped on. So to be honest, it's flowing through me right now. Um, But I want to ask you a pretty big question. Um, How do you, my friend, connect the dots between climate action, resilience, and adaptation, and how it connects to improving society for the better. Hmm. Okay. I think, I think the key point with connecting the dots is that this is really a interdisciplinary problem. This isn't just about air quality. This isn't just about transportation. This isn't just about communities. All those things are different, are uh, interconnected. And it's going to take a multi-prong approach in order to solve those issues. And, but that said, you know, transportation does have probably the largest impact on climate change. It accounts for 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the entire world already. And the problem isn't necessarily like cars, right? But it's the fact that we have too many cars on the road. And you know, throwing, uh, you know, electric benefits out there, like, or electric cars out there, you know, they're helpful, but if everyone who has a regular car now switches over to electric cars, there's still tons of congestion, which has, which has serious environmental impacts um, all, all across. And I also think uh, it's really important as part of connecting the dots, recognizing who's at the table and who's not. You know, we just had this really large climate change conference in Glasgow. And uh, there was an article that came out of there that talked about how, you know, women were at the forefront in the grassroots activism and the protesting. But when you're looking at the decision makers at, I think it was COP26 or something like that. I shouldn't know that, but whatever, I don't. Uh, <laughs> uh, but all those decision makers are men. And I, 
think that, you know, we need the, those global conversations to be happening for sure, but where you're going to really see the change is at the local government level. And that's also true that you see women more so at the forefront for grassroots activism, pushing uh, for different, um, different positive changes in our environment, like the city of Eugene uh, just became the first city to um, say that they're going to move or move away from fossil fuel and electrify all their building from here on out. And, you know, when we look at the majority of the people that provide testimony at that uh, city council meeting, it was women. And, uh, you know, I just think it's really important to recognize that climate change is also an equity issue um, because it's not even just not women, like we're both white women. Uh, at the not at the table, it, it's uh, BIPOC people, it's queer people, it's people from different um, nationalities. Like we don't have any kind of that representation, therefore none of that thinking happening um, or not happening as much as it should. So I think that's really important and we need people from different backgrounds to really understand that better. I'm a transportation planner. That's what I specialize in. I focus on doing developing equity frameworks around performance evaluation for different transportation planning projects. And one project I was lucky enough to work on helped to uh, develop a baseline assessment for uh, equity focused communities in LA. LA Metro has developed a definition uh, for that. Um, and you know, different agencies de develop that definition differently, but um, uh, I helped to coordinate developing equity focus performance evaluation and metrics to help understand how different transportation investments, even good ones that are combating climate change, like walking and biking, uh, making sure those transit investments don't actually harm the community in other ways, such as displacement and gentrification. Because if that's the case, then you're just really moving the problem. Um, this one baseline assessment that I helped to develop uh, looks at these different metrics and there are different air quality metrics, but there's also ones that look at displacement so that, you know, from year to year as they're doing this analysis every year, that if they start to see, you know, the people that were living in that community move out, they can develop tools and policies right now to combat that rather than waiting until the gentrification has already taken place and then saying my bad again, like, because it is again at this point, we know better. We have the tools to solve that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I really appreciate like the roundabout way that you're able to connect these dots and really show that climate action is powerful when it's um, reducing consumption and more on the personal level. But when we're thinking about how we are building and framing the world that we live in, the way that you're talking about the importance of bringing people to the table in important decisions and factoring in human like human factors as in transportation access and air quality and these these things that should be used as guardrails in order to make sure that we have a society that has an a um, high level of uh, standard of living and quality of life for everyone and so I really appreciate the way that you, you're bringing to light how important having um, representation at the decision-making table is um, and how it is a pathway forward 
to recalibrate the society that we're living in, especially as we're seeing these huge transportation um, infrastructure investments and how we've seen infrastructure in the past has framed the world that we live in. So like you were saying, it's going to happen again. It's important that we're super keen um, on the way that these decisions are being made. Um, And it's awesome to hear that you're at the table and able to elevate um, these voices and these concerns um, and use these metrics as like a very tangible way to um, measure product uh, progress. Yeah, I think one of the key things with metrics, or at least one of the more like, and at least for me, one of the more enlightening moments I had when it came to the importance of data is that there was a study done in 2011 of pedestrian plans. And um, of those pedestrian plans, only 30% of them only had, had, had any kind of socioeconomic data. But what was more concerning was that of the planners surveyed for um, what is important in a pedestrian plan, only one said it was important to include any kind of socioeconomic data. And we know now that you know it's black and brown communities that don't have sidewalks, that have higher uh, uh, traffic fatalities. They're the ones that have poor air quality because cars there are more cars in the area. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. And there was a report done by Oregon Walks. It was published actually this year, earlier this year. Hi, Maddie here. Um, this episode was recorded in 2021 for those who want to look up the study. Um, but they really did a wonderful job of showing how urban design and policy has led directly to pedestrian fatalities. Of the fatalities that they investigated um, that happened at nighttime, 100% of the people that died were black. And they were also in areas that didn't have lights. So, I mean, that just, I just think that's a very good example of showing how when we don't think about this, it gets pushed under the rug kind of like climate change and you know you just have people that are just kind of talking like oh yeah like yeah it's important but not what can we do about it or I don't know like I just feel like the global leaders right now are pushing it like not my problem kind of deal and it's like it kind of is like (laughs) right or even these like silver bullet solutions but what that we're searching for but in reality with the um, the example that you just brought up, a simple intervention of lights and consideration could be that intervening factor that could have saved um, or prevented those deaths. Um, yeah, and I think it is important, though, to note, um, you know, as you're talking with different stakeholders, that requires a different language. Like how I talk to transit agencies is not the same how I talk to community members. It's not the same I talk to as a working group. It's not the same that I talk to when I'm talking to business owners. Like all those kind of, you have to be able to help people understand why this is important, why it needs to happen now. And that this is not a Republican or Democrat or uh, any other party issue. It's, it's a human issue that needs to be solved now. Absolutely. And so could you, expand on what is a tool that you know true and why do you believe in that tool um, with the work that you do? Well, I think data and metrics are important because I just spent a long time talking about that. 
<laughs> um, but I would say, I would say, you know, kind of going off the point of like being able to speak different languages and outreach and engagement that it is important. And I think an important tool to have with any project is collaboration. You have to have people wanting to work together and not trying to sabotage or even subconsciously sabotaging things. Um, I've definitely been in work environments where, uh, you know, I've worked in outdoor rec prior to my job now, I worked at an outdoor recreation for five years and it was kind of amazing to see, you know, we all want to protect the outdoors and, and, and help people develop like a land ethic, um, a climate ethic, but definitely there were people who they also wanted that, but they wanted it their way and, and not willing to, you know, compromise, especially when they're the one in the position that should be compromising. So. Right. And do you think that, and I, I think I know what you're going to say, but like, just there's a key role of having, of hearing the other side Yeah. Um, in that. Cause I think often when there's only one, one group or one perspective of looking at an issue that fills up the whole room. Yeah. Um, so could you speak on how you bring more voices in the room? Well, I think, think it comes down to what the, that collaboration piece, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, when I'm working with rural communities, which do tend to be a bit more conservative, I don't frame things in the sense of like, I'm taking, like, for instance, I have a ton of coal miners in my family still. And, uh, but I don't frame when I'm talking about climate change with them, I don't frame it as in we're going to take coal away. We need to transition. We've evolved now. We had our time with coal. Uh, we've developed other more sustainable and climate friendly ways to uh, provide energy for the country. Uh, and we need to transition to that now. And we're going to bring you with us. We're not just going to leave you up and dry. I think that's a really big concern for a lot of people is because industry has come and left in a lot of communities that they're afraid it's going to happen again and they're not necessarily wrong so if we can frame it in terms like for rural communities like job access is very important uh, because there's just not as many jobs uh you know if we can frame it as like you're not going to lose your job we're going to help train you you know if we could get the government to help pay for a program because education should be free and that's a different topic for another day um, but if we could like get them trained and then they work in on windmills, for instance, like that's a, that's a energy that for right now we can foresee using well into the future because it's renewable. You're walking through these important considerations and facets of these solutions that we need. They need to consider the today's status and situations of our of the citizens, um, specifically in the United States, but this is also a global, global situation that we're all broaching. And like, you raise a really good point on the fact that these solutions need to be, or are going to be well-rounded or else they're not really going to be able to alleviate the, um, the issues and disparities that we currently have. Vet considerations of 
how does this workforce development transition um, into from a, a coal job to a green energy job and making sure that burden and that onus isn't necessarily on that individual because there needs to be um, circular support through government education or programs or incentives that it's not just up to the single person who's dealing with life itself, but rather they're able to see how they're part of this transition on a bigger scale. Um, And so I think it's also like people are like worried this is going to happen tomorrow and, you know, transitions take time. We're making progress, which is important. I think that's important to acknowledge because it's a marathon that we're in. Probably a marathon. I don't know. Whatever the longest distance that a human can run, that's the kind of race that we're in. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, just recognize that you're not going to run that ultra marathon in two hours. So Absolutely. And something just on a more anecdotal sense, a, a quote that's been getting me through the overwhelming tasks of life or lists and to do's or like being where my feet are today is the only way to move forward down that path. Um, I think I often think even with the creation of this like podcast and production, I'm like, okay, well, what's the end goal going to look like? But we're not going to know until I hit record and start having conversations and start working through. And I think that that's The biggest thing that I see as someone who is kind of situated within the environmental um, world and the transportation world is seeing that I love the concept of, you know, automated like vehicles and like micromobility and like all this really connected, fun transportation. I I call it fun. Other people probably call it just part of their day-to-day life. (laughs) Um, But thinking about how like, and probably the same for you, like where our feet are now is making sure these projects are able to get their, like, get their like legs on the ground and start rolling out in a way that is considering everything. I saw a light go off. What? Um, And I just think, and I think again, going back to like the global level versus local level Mm. and like different changes that we like all of our responsibilities, not just like global, not just local, everybody's. Right. And I think a lot of people and climate activists included want to chase the big shiny carrot of let's make really forceful change right now. And yes, that's important and we need it. But again, that collaboration piece comes in and there's something to be said that progress is not a linear line. It is a line that goes forward, backward, sideways. And there's one project that I worked on um, that is looking a lot at a lot of those new mobility technologies. But, you know, when we, this area doesn't have broadband and it's not going to get broadband for quite some time. And that's essential for getting these services launched. But we also noticed that when we were doing our, the highway analysis, that there weren't call boxes along the road. And we brought this up in a working group meeting and the um, agency is now installing call boxes along that road because it's a safety issue. And actually it helps with climate change too, because as you know, being on the West Coast, what wildfire season is a natural season out here now. And if someone can see a wildfire that has started and can get to a call box there, 
which this whole area is in a wildfire inter interface, then hopefully that fire won't take out a whole town like Blue River or Paradise, which is ironic that Paradise burnt down. Like, right, yeah. not very paradisical, if you ask me. <laughs> no, totally. And I think your example highlights exactly the the like attitude of like being where your feet are now it's like these it's not this like silver bullet new innovation it's like how about we have call boxes and increase the access of everyone or the access and connectivity and these pieces um so that we can move forward with like actual tangible things as opposed to waiting for the silver spaceship to come take us to mars for example <laughs> you know um so like that would be I don't think I don't even want to dive into that but I don't think that's something that is so um like something to poo-poo at or to woo-ah or whatever to be like super supportive of it's just not the reality of where we are today and yeah. I think that that being in touch with the, t the reality today of who we are um as individuals living in in Oregon both of us you know it's like I don't necessarily have the capital to influence a huge uh transition and I don't necessarily think that anyone does or the resources in that sense it's really about like where are we now how do we move forward and how do we make sure that um this is the best application because I think in the past too and we see this with transportation the auto industry basically ransacked the entire transportation systems, right? And there was no checks, no balances. And now we're in the situation we are in today with completely spread out communities that are extremely reliant on fossil fuels that even further our um, climate crisis and expose people to harmful pollutants. But I'll play devil's advocate here. Please. Because I'm not against cars. I am not. Right, right. Uh, I just think we have too many and we need to tone that down. Um, but cars have offered so many people so much more freedom. Without mm -hmm. transportation, you have no mobility. And that affects health access, that affects school, it affects jobs, which affects poverty rates, uh, which affects certain communities more so than others. And uh, like for me, I can think back to, you know, when I didn't have a car, I didn't drive until I was 19. Uh, and I definitely uh, was lower income at that point. And just thinking about my options for employment and where I was going to school, like were, were pretty limited as a result. And so, and also cars off, offer some of the best safety that you can have. Um, because you are in a five-ton vehicle. Um, even though I'm pretty sure that we all know someone that has died in uh, a traffic crash, uh, they do provide more safety than walking or biking can uh, gain from place to place because it is auto-centric right now. Um, so until we take, again, those small steps, like building not just a bike lane, but a protected bike lane, right. uh, you know, we're, I'm going to stay in my car. Yeah. I mean, same. I definitely, I, I was driving, um, in Portland the other day and I saw this like girl who looked exactly like my age, you know, probably a similar situation on a bike that had no lights on it. 
And it was like getting dark. And like, I had only seen her just because it was just the right, you know, I was driving slow and I parked at this, the side of the street and I literally saw this car and I was like, that is asking so much of someone, you know, to get on that bike and people do it out of necessity. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, how do why is that bike not already outfitted with lights? Right. That and, can't be stolen because it is so annoying when your bike's lights get stolen. I've had it happen. Right. And I think we're touching on, there's like a whole ecosystem of things that need to be in the right place in order to create safe, um, biking or safe, just transportation in general. Um, or safe living conditions is really what it boils down to. Yeah. Um, Interdisciplinary process. Like it's the bike shop's responsibility to buy bikes to sell to people that are already outfitted with lights, but it's the city's uh, governments um, that are responsible for the road design. Automakers have a responsibility in how they design their cars. And uh, I mean, yeah, I could go on with that list, but you know, again, it's going to take a whole community to solve this. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that you've really kind of touched on all the questions too that I wanted to ask, like diving even deeper into like how how is transportation like an equity issue? How is it an opportunity to create equity? Um, do you do you mind touching on that a little bit more? Yeah, uh, I think there's something to be said for investing in. Uh, communities that have been historically underinvested in for a very long time. That said, transportation for so long we have focused, and still today, we have focused on transportation literally as a place, as a, as a, as a process to get from point A to point B, and that's it. Um, whereas transportation is a community development tool, and uh, areas that don't have good transportation that are auto centric that it's not safe to walk and bike, do not fare nearly as well, both economically and health-wise, as communities that do have, you know, those things. And, but that said, once, I think there's something to be said to be very intentional about how you plan uh, transportation so that one, you're giving those communities the same benefits as other richer and generally wider communities, but also, that you're ensuring that displacement and then therefore gentrification isn't gonna happen again. So it really takes like transportation for equity is not just about putting in the bike lane in the black neighborhood. It's about putting in the protected black uh, bike lane in the black neighborhood, but then ensuring that, you know, the small businesses can still afford their rents, uh, that the residents can still afford their rents, that you know, that they're a transit oriented community, but that it's not going to be overtaken by like Google. So. Absolutely. So really having those very intentional decisions and, um, and oftentimes it's really challenging that status quo because like you um, for or hinting at is like when these investments are made these more flashy investments often gentrification follows often it changes the natural um community that lives there um and so just i think it's a testament or really proving or even just highlighting how important it is to think about how it's not just 
putting one thing in and assuming change is going to be made, but really being sticking around and monitoring the, the rest of the factors that play come into play. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Well, Corey, I feel like this is a great place to like pause our conversation and hopefully we can uh, meet up again and have a even further conversation. Cause I think that, you know, the real intention here is just to like start planting these seeds on how do we look at the world around us and how do we realize that there's people like you, there's people like me, there's people like Joe and John and all the other names that I can think of that we're each pushing on different places. Um, and that it's important to remember that so that we can all kind of march forward together um, and remember that we can ask each other when we need help and move through those things. Yes, that is very important. Well, thanks, Corey. I'm going to end this out, but thanks everyone for listening and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to a lengthy but could be lengthier discussion on the climate cause. Check out the show notes and or visit our website, The Climate Cause, for more information. Follow us on your socials and check out the ecologicaldesignnetwork.com. Thanks.